Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. Welcome to the 1045. Uh, Y'all know what the best part of pumpkin pie is? The whipped cream. Where's all my apple pie people? Yes, praise the Lord and hallelujah. I was in first grade when I first started having trouble reading the chalkboard. And my mom took me to the eye doctor and sure enough, I needed glasses. And that began a rhythm that became pretty constant for the next several years of my life. We'd go to the eye doctor every time I would go. I needed a new prescription. My vision just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I didn't realize exactly how bad it was until I was a sophomore in high school. I had just moved to Monterey, California, and uh, I needed a physical in order to play football. And so we did all the, you know, doctor physical things. And the last part of it was to check my vision. And so we walked out of the exam room and went back into the hallway that I had just walked down. And she said, all right, stand on this mark. You see the eye chart down there, take your glasses off and read the lowest line possible. And I said, okay, great, Roger. So I stood on the line, I took my glasses off and I looked down there and I said, doc, I know that at the end of this hallway is a door. And on that door hangs a chart. And at the top of that chart is a letter E. She goes, that's right. Now I just need you to read the lowest line possible. I said, got it. I have a problem though. She goes, what's the problem? I said, I can't see the door. She goes, oh my. As it turns out, I was legally blind twice over. That's how bad my vision was. She goes, okay, uh, please put your glasses on and now tell me what you can read. And I read all the way down to 2020. I'm incredibly thankful for uh, the modern technology of uh, glasses and contacts and eventually LASIK. It changed my life. But it it couldn't help but wonder what would my life have been like had I grown up, been born in a different time in a different part of the world where corrective lenses was not a part of it? What kind of life would I have lived? And how might people have um, come to expect life around me to be? Um, Instead of being a a productive member of society, many people would have viewed me as the opposite of that. I'm not able to really do a lot to help myself, not able to do a lot to work by myself, not able to do anything like that in an ancient time where where, where, where there wasn't a lot of sympathy for that. But thankfully, because of corrected lenses, I was able to, I was able to have my, my vision problem corrected so that I could see correctly and I could, I could enjoy and participate so many things about the world that I now am able to see and know and enjoy. When it comes to being a man, I am convinced that a lot of men live with a vision problem. Not in the sense that they can't see things. They, I'm sure they can. As you get older, maybe you see a little bit less, less as good as you used to could. Um, that, let's put that on a shirt. I just made that up. Uh, but here's, here's the issue. I believe that a lot of men have sight, but no vision. And because we have sight, but no vision, we, we don't, we don't have a strong anchor to serve as what we are aspiring towards when it comes to being a man. Instead, we've allowed the culture, we've allowed society, we've allowed marketing agencies to define what masculinity is and and Hollywood to define what being a man is and what being a man isn't. And because of that, instead of being strong, reliable, trusted sources that people around us can lean on and lean into, we end up becoming the types of people that, that are constantly requiring to be able to lean on or lean against or lean underneath the shelter of somebody else because we don't have a vision for authentic manhood. 
And that's the title of today's message, A Vision for Authentic Manhood. And it's my prayer today that as I share with you some things from scripture, that it would, it would shape our vision of what it means to be a man. That it would, it would help us understand what it is that God hopes and wants and dreams and desires for us men. Now, if you're new with us today, we're in week two of a teaching series specifically focused towards the fellas. Um, but ladies, I don't want you to tune out because I think that there's be some, there'll be some nuggets that you're gonna be able to pull off and pull out from this message today as well. In order for us to be able to have a, a vision that we can aspire towards, we gotta understand the two most prominent people in scripture. First Corinthians tells us in 15, verse 45, and so it is written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, verse 47, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Who are these two Adams? Well, the first Adam is, is Adam from Genesis um, when God created humanity. God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make man in our image. And then he created a man and he named that man Adam. The second Adam that 1 Corinthians talks about is the Lord Jesus himself. And what I want to do is I want to paint a comparison for you about the reality that all people and all men are born into as a result of being children of Adam, a part of being part of the human race. But I want to compare that and contrast that with Jesus because I want you to see what's possible when we live our lives pursuing and under the Lordship and in surrender to Jesus. All right, and so I built a list here and uh, I want you to follow along that in the first Adam, we see life separated from God. That even though that Adam walked with God in the cool of day, that, that, that he made decisions and his actions caused him to be separated from God. It, it, it eventually caused him to be um, led out of the Garden of Eden where he can no longer have access to because God was protecting them from further damage. But in Jesus, we see life in union with God. We see God in perfect harmony. Some of you might go, well, well, Jesus kind of had a cheat code. I mean, Jesus was God, right? Yes, Jesus was the son of God. He was the second person of the Trinity. But here's what, I, what we need to understand, that in Christ, the spirit of God comes and takes residence inside of us. And we now have the spirit of God, the being of God living and dwelling in us. We too have the option of living in union with God. In Adam, we see, how does he live? How does he lead? How does he react and respond to things? Well, he re re reacts and responds in the natural way of instinct and reaction and preservation. But in Jesus, what we learn is that we see that Jesus doesn't just respond by, by flesh and by selfish motives and selfish desires. Instead, Jesus responds always in perfect sync and perfect harmony by faith. In Adam, we see that Adam is someone who seeks to draw life from people. Literally, because of Adam, all sin leads to death. If it was not for Adam, if it was not for his actions, then death and disease and curse and brokenness and, and bitterness and anxiety and depression would not be a part of the human story. Adam literally takes life from people. But in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, is, Jesus seeks to give life to others. He is a life-giving spirit. In Adam, we see a life devoid of transcendent meaning. He had an opportunity to be a part of something that had significance and meaning, but he chose something else. But in Jesus, what we find is we find a life filled with meaning and destiny. And when we compare and contrast the two, here's what we ultimately find. 
that in Adam, the way that we are all born and where we are all destined, unless we have a radical encounter with Jesus, we are all destined to where Adam was destined to, which is failed masculinity where he used his power like we talked about last week and because he was not trained and he was not initiated in what it means to be a man, because he did not surrender and yield himself to the the lordship of God in his life, his masculinity failed, not just his bride, but all of humanity. But in Jesus, what we see is an elevated masculinity. We see power under control. We see meekness on display. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under restraint. And as we continue on into the content today, what I want you to see is that not only do we see a comparison and a contrast between the life that all of us are destined for apart from Jesus, the life that is defined by Adam on the right side of the screen, or the left side of the screen. But what I want you to see what is possible for those who choose to surrender themselves and allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. That's what we see on the right side of the screen. And what I wanna share with you by further contrasting these two is I wanna share with you four pillars of a vision that will, that will shape how you view masculinity. And for some of us, we will experience today, maybe for the very first time, a biblical framework by which to think about masculinity and manhood. And the first thing that we're gonna talk about today is that a real man rejects passivity. I don't know if you know this or not. If you, have, uh, if you are blessed to be able to be a parent of both a son and a daughter, um, they different. Boys are hardwired psychologically and physiologically to be more aggressive than girls are. I have never had my daughter sucker punch me in the face. It's never happened. It's never happened. I have never had my daughter say, Dad, what happens when I do this? And then punch me in the, that's never happened. With my boys, it's happened more times than I could count. I remember when my kids were learning to eat. Micah, babies are messy, amen? All right, Micah was starting to eat. She's, you know, we put the food on the plate. She's got the spoon and she's eating. It's mess, she looks cute. When Carson came along, what I experienced with Micah was a mess. What I experienced with Carson was food that had been murdered. It was a massacre. There was nothing within a 10-foot radius that didn't have food on it. Boys are hardwired to be aggressive. As boys grow and develop, they will continue to be aggressive. And it's gonna look different in different seasons of their lives. And that aggression is gonna look different from one boy to the other. But it remains true that generally speaking, boys are hardwired to be aggressive until... Something happens in the evolution of a boy into becoming a man that that they remain aggressive towards the things that they care about. They remain aggressive to the things that they say matter to them. They remain aggressive to the things that are of interest to them. But something happens by and large for most boys and most men that when it comes to situations that require social or spiritual action, something changes. And that aggressive nature somehow disappears and goes away. We see that with Adam all the way back in Genesis chapter three. 
God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He had given them uh, responsibility and he had given them some regulations to abide by. In Genesis chapter two, we see this, that in the Lord God commanded them saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God has placed them in the garden. He's given them responsibility and regulations. And then Satan comes along in the form of a certain a serpent. And here's what Satan knows. Satan knows that Adam and Eve, humanity, are the pinnacle of God's creation. Satan knows that there is something different about Adam and Eve that, that separates them from everything else that's been created. We talked about this last week, that they are made in the image of God, the Latin phrase, imago Dei. And so what Satan decides to do is he goes, listen, I believe that I can, I can upset God's plan of what he wants to do in this if I can just lead Adam and Eve away from God and towards something else, which by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are spiritual forces and spiritual war that is going on all around us and that every single good and great and awesome thing that God wants to do, the enemy is constantly trying to attack it. He's trying to do that in your career. He's trying to do that in your marriage. He's trying to do that in your singleness. He's trying to do that in the things that you are prone to be drawn to. He's doing that in the life of your children. He is constantly attacked and trying to pull away and push against the good things that God is trying to do. And that's what Satan does. Satan comes along and he finds Eve and Eve entertains the conversation. She engages Satan and then Satan throws the ultimate dagger, the ultimate sucker punch. He throws something out there that causes Eve to doubt and question the goodness of God. And it says this, for God knows, Genesis 3, 5, that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan's trying to tempt Eve to doubt God, to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness. And while all of this is happening, I can't help but wonder, where's Adam at? I mean, what's Adam doing? Perhaps we could give Adam the benefit of the doubt. Oh, Adam's working. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's tilling the ground or, or he, you know, he's rustling up some cattle. What men do. I mean, I don't, I don't know what men did, you know, in the days before football, golf, beer, and video games was invented. I don't, I don't know, right? Maybe he was off trying to invent one of those things. I'm not sure. Adam, where are you at, bro? What are you doing? Well, the next verse tells us where Adam is. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then here it is. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Adam, where are you at, bro? <laughs> Adam is right freaking there. He is watching his bride be propositioned by the father of lies. And he does nothing. She is being socially and spiritually assaulted. Adam, this is your moment, bro. Step up, be a man. That's my woman. Back away from my woman. But Adam does nothing. He watches and observes while the serpent has his way in deceiving Eve into an action that would curse humanity. Man, can I just tell you, that our society and our homes and our churches are filled with too many men who when push comes to shove and it requires social or spiritual action, we pull an atom and we pull back and we do nothing. 
in my 15 years of ministry, I have been in counseling with so many families who cry out for the man of their house to walk in the door and do anything but tune out. As 11 years as a youth pastor, I counseled teenager after teenager after teenager that said, I just wish my dad would show an interest in my life. I wish my dad would show up to the things that matter in my life. I know that work is important and we gotta have food, we gotta pay the bills. But but listen, there are far too many kids and children and teenagers that grow up and they see an example of a dad that is out changing the world and fighting the demons and doing all the things outside of the home, but they show no interest in the children that God has entrusted in them to be present to be there in the things that they, they care about and not just to be there in the things that matter, but to play a role in shaping their moral and spiritual fabric and framework of how they view and see the world. I've counseled with far too many marriages where the woman in the marriage, the wife in the marriage says, I just wish my husband would stand with me, would stand by me, would stand for me, would protect me, would pray for me. And I've heard of far too many homes where when the man comes home, he is anything but a life-giving presence. He comes in like a whirlwind of confusion and destruction and chaos. And the people that live in the house aren't exactly sure what to expect and what to prepare for because they don't know what man is gonna walk through the door. Men, there's a reason why the Bible tells us over and over and over again that we are to love our wives, that we are to spiritually instruct our kids. Let me talk about this for a second. When we spiritually instruct our kids, it is so much more than just your wife or, or their mom saying, I don't know what to do anymore. And then you show up and you be the heavy, you be bad cop. No. God instructs us as men, as fathers to be involved in teaching our children who Jesus is, what God's word says, not just relying on the church to do that, but for you to take an active role in participating in the developing and the shaping of how your kids and your grandkids will understand who God is, the love of Christ and how to operate and live in this world that hates God while still being connected and related to a God that loves them. The Bible's filled with teachings about how we are to lead our homes. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus wasn't passive at all. Jesus was was the opposite of passive. Jesus was socially and spiritually aggressive. Do you recognize that when Jesus was in heaven, looking down on the condition of humanity, he could have said, I am the Prince of heaven. I have a throne. The angels bow down and worship me. I'm gonna let them figure it out. No, he wasn't passive, he was aggressive. He took action, he leaned in and he willingly surrendered all of the rights that was due to him as the Prince of Heaven to come and dwell on earth, to put on human flesh. The creator became created so that he could go and pay for all of the wrongs and all of the sin that had happened in the world, even though he had never once done anything wrong himself. Jesus rejected passivity. A real man will reject passivity, but not only that, a real man will accept responsibility. Can I tell you this, men? It doesn't matter if you're here today and you're married or single. God calls you to lead. He calls you to accept responsibility for your actions, but Adam doesn't do that. 
want you to notice what happens. God comes in after they've eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes in like he does every single day to spend time with Adam and Eve. God shows up and he can't find them. Not because he doesn't know where they are. He's God, he knows where everything is, but he's giving them an opportunity to, to present themselves. I want you to notice what Adam does. Verse 11 says, God said, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man, that's Adam. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say Adam. It says the man, revealing a semblance of shame. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And then, yeah, and then I did eat that. Yeah. In other words, Adam was going, you see what had happened was that thing happened and then she was standing there and I saw her and you made her looking all kinds of right. And she like, hey, big boy, hello, you want some? And then what had happened was, as I was like, mm, I can't say no to that. And then he goes, and, and, and so really, really, God, I know, <laughs> here the problem is, it's her fault. Actually, when I think about it, notice this, the woman you gave to be me. Actually, God, it's not, it's not even our fault. It's your fault. You just try that one time. Let me know how that works for you. You know what Adam's doing? Punches about to get like judgment, smiting. It's about to happen. Adam's like ducking out of the way. Now, some might go, I get it. Adam's being strategic there. I mean, it wasn't really his fault. I mean, Eve was the one that did it. And, and he was second. So like, it makes sense logically to me that Adam would go, listen, I wasn't the first one. They did it first. Can I tell you that what Adam is revealing about himself here, it's not strategy. It's cowardice. He's being a coward. He's not accepting any responsibility for his actions. So it is, men, that any time that you and I do not res uh, uh, accept responsibility for our actions, the things that we do, the things that we're responsible for, we're, when we're trying to duck and hide and we think we're being all cool and clever, we're not being clever, we're being cowards. God calls us to accept responsibility. Yet again, Jesus was just the opposite. Jesus knew his fate. Jesus knew why he was here. He said it over and over and over again. I have come so that I might go to Jerusalem, that I might be lifted up. I'm gonna die and I'm gonna go to the grave, but I'm coming back. And over and over again, the disciples go, what? No way. Uh-uh. Peter gets real bold at one point. No, not over my dead body. I just imagine that's what happened. I'm not sure when people learned that. Maybe it was first century fishermen that taught it. You don't know I'm wrong, so. When Peter stands up and goes over my dead body, Jesus, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And when things were at their, their heaviest, when the pressure had mounted, when the stress was at its fulcrum point. We talked about this last week, men, that, that when pressure builds and stress builds, we, we reach to things that, 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 that give us comfort. We try to build something. I'm not gonna re-preach that message. You gotta listen to it again last week. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. 
When the time has come for Jesus to put up or shut up, I want you to notice what happens in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is in the garden and he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. So Jesus is saying, God, I don't want to do this. I didn't do anything wrong. But he accepts the responsibility and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus doesn't step out of the way. He doesn't dodge anything. He steps up to the plate as a real man. And he says, I will take responsibility. Hear this, even when I'm not at fault. Jesus accepted responsibility. A real man will accept responsibility. A real man will also lead courageously. I want to provide a little bit of a, of a tangent, if I can, just for a second. When I read scripture, what I learn from God is that God expects that every single child of his, every single follower of Jesus will be a leader. That does not mean that you need to go be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or start a nonprofit. I'm not saying that. God might call you that. And if so, you need to go do that. But God calls every single one of his children to be a leader. He says that you are to go let your light so shine before men. He said you are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says you're to be my ambassadors. So when the entire culture and the entire world is swimming this way, Jesus calls us and God calls us to lead by turning and going the other way because all the world and the culture are going away from God to a place that's never gonna lead to the life that they're hoping for. And the only real life that we could ever hope for is found by going that way towards Jesus. God calls all of us to lead. But God places a special responsibility on us as men to lead. Adam not only passively watched the events unfold with his bride, he chose not to lead his bride. Can I tell you this? It wasn't Eve's responsibility to lead in that moment. You say, how do you know that? Because when God shows up and he starts asking about it, it says in verse nine, then the Lord called to who? Adam. He didn't call out to Eve. He didn't say, Eve, where are you at, girl? No, he says, Adam, where are you? Now, this doesn't mean that God views Eve as some second-rate, second-class citizen. It's just trying to help us understand that God has expected Adam to lead. So, when God shows up to take account of the things that have happened, he calls first to Adam because it was Adam's responsibility to lead courageously. But instead he didn't. He didn't lead at all. He didn't lead by advocating for what he knew was true. He was there the same way that Eve was when God said, listen, here are the, here are the responsibilities and here are the regulations. Adam was there when, when, the, when the serpent tried to deceive Eve and tried to spin things out. He was there when Eve responded in the wrong way. He was there when the serpent handed her the fruit. He was there as she ate of the fruit. He was there when she turned and handed the fruit to him. And he was there when he chose to eat of it. He chose to not lead courageously by the truth of God's word. Can I tell you something, men? Our world, our homes, our churches, our society needs more men who will lead with courage on the truth of God's word. 
And I'm not talking about this passive, well, I think what I need to do is this. So now that I've got my mind made up, I'm gonna go look in the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about it. And hopefully the Bible will agree with me because if the Bible agrees with me, now I can make my decision with some biblical validation about why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm voting for who I'm voting for, why I'm spending my money where I'm spending it, why I'm saying and doing what I'm saying and doing, why I'm going where I'm going. That's not the kind of leadership that the world needs. That's not the kind of leadership that your family needs. It's not the kind of leadership that you need. You need the kind of leadership and the world needs the kind of leadership that will open up, where men will open up the word of God and say, God, if it says it in here and I disagree with it, I'm wrong. The world needs men who will spend time with the word of God and stop making excuses. Well, I don't understand it. It's just an old ancient book. Listen, I am so passionate about you understanding God's word. We have got resources upon resources upon resources that will help you understand how to read, how to study, and how to understand God's word. Stop using that as an excuse. The world needs, your family needs, your home needs, our church needs more men who will spend time with the word of God, will open the word of God, and lay themselves prostrate in humility before the word of God and say, God, your word gets to choose what I say. Your word gets to choose what I listen to. Your word gets to choose where my money goes. Your word gets to choose how I react and respond in my marriage, at work, at home, with my neighborhood, and with my kids. Your word gets to say how I, how I vote. Your word gets to define what my career choices are. Your word gets to define the, who I am and where I go and what I do and how I act when I get there. In a world that hates increasingly the idea of men being men. I believe the reason the world hates the idea of men being men is because men start trying to be boys instead of start trying to be godly men. We need to lead courageously. There's gonna be times where you're gonna take a stand on God's word and it's not gonna be popular with your spouse. It's not gonna be popular with your kids. It's not gonna be popular at work. And just because you know something's not popular doesn't mean you need to go to social media and tell everybody how you're doing it so more people can get mad at you and use their anger as your justification for why you're doing what you're doing. The only justification you need is that your life would bring glory and honor to the Lord who who sent his son to die for you. But Jesus was the epitome of what it looks like to lead courageously. He constantly, in the face of pressure and opposition from the Pharisees and the crowd, He was undeterred. He led. When he encountered disagreement and dissent amongst his followers, he was undeterred. He led. In the moment when he, Scripture talks about a time where he spent 40 days in prayer and fasting, and then Satan shows up to tempt him to try to get him off axis and off course, to to not lead himself, but to just do what his flesh wanted to do. In that moment, Jesus led courageously. Jesus always led courageously. A real man leads courageously. And then lastly, number four, a real man expects a greater reward. Here's a truth that all men know to be true. Being a boy is easy. Being a man is hard. That isn't to say it's harder than being a woman. I have watched many things that my, my wife was gone for the last three days on a girl's trip with a friend. I've got new respect for my wife. All three kids were sick during those three days. Dear Lord, 
the first night, my oldest puked all over the bathroom floor. Now we have an agreement in my house. If it comes out the top side, I'm out. If it comes out the bottom side, I can help. I heard Mike could get out of the room and you know the sound. And then the splat. She didn't make it to the bathroom, to the toilet. I got new respect for my woman. She is tougher than me. Fellas, if you perceive that manhood, the kind of manhood that we're talking about is another task to do, another list in the long line of things that you're supposed to do, another burden that you're supposed to carry. If you view the idea of biblical masculinity and manhood as is something that you just do and, and, and you don't get any joy or, or satisfaction or fulfillment from it. Can I just tell you something? You'll never walk down the road of being a godly man. But I want you to hear me very clearly today that God did not create biblical manhood with the intention of it being burdensome. God, God created and he intended biblical masculinity to be something that would be liberating and be a means of great reward. Listen, are there financial rewards that are often given when you lead exceptionally in, in your place of business? Absolutely. But that's not the greater reward. Is there a greater reward in heaven because of you being a godly man and the impact that your life representing Christ and, and loving and serving the world around you? Are there spiritual rewards of people who are gonna be in heaven because of you? Absolutely, that's the greater reward. But here's the deal. Here's the thing that I never understood until recently. I never understood that God's desire was to actually allow me to experience part of the greater reward on this side of heaven. Because of that, there were times where it was difficult for me to like, okay, God, I get it, great. When I die, there's gonna be people there. Like, I got it, awesome, praise God, amen, hallelujah. Praise be the Lord, right? Like, I'll sing the song. But honestly, that doesn't help me a lot right now in this moment. But here's what I began to realize. I began to realize that all throughout scripture, God has led little breadcrumbs that, that he wants to help us understand that he wants to bless us in this life too. John 10, 10, Jesus said that, um, I'm skipping around in my notes, guys. John 10, 10 said that the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. First Timothy chapter six and verse six, it says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Listen, God wants us to understand that there are joys, there are blessings, there are rewards to living the way that we do. How did Jesus do it? How was Jesus able to, to go through all of that gruesome difficulty, to be, to, to be arrested, to be wrongly accused, to have his beard pulled out, to be beaten in the face, to have a crown of thorns put on his head, to, to have his back whipped and stripped and beaten and flung open by being beaten with a cat of nine tails? How was he able to endure the pain of being crucified on a cross? And, and worst of all, how was he able to endure the, 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 the most terrible part of it for him, which was the moment that the sins of humanity were placed upon upon him and God the Father for the first time in the relationship of the Trinity of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God the Father turned his back on God the Son because of the sin of humanity that was laid upon him. How did he do it? How did he get through it? Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and here it is, who for the joy that was set before him, that's how he was able to get through it. 
Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was the greater reward that he was anticipating and looking forward to, to help motivate him to get him through the suck of what he was getting ready to go through? I'll tell you what the joy was. It was you. It was the hope that you would one day discover the life that is only found in Jesus. That you could realize that your sins and all of the pain and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation could be relieved off of your shoulders. That not only that, but that you could be set free from all of your past and all of your decisions and all of the bad mistakes that you've made. And that you could begin to realize that God wants to lead you into a place where you can understand why you're here and why there's breath in your lungs so that you could go out and live a life that matters so that when you wake up in the morning, you know, man, today counted, today mattered. I know why I'm here. That's the joy that was set before Jesus. What's the joy that's set before you? I don't, I don't know how to answer that question for you. But I'd love to give you some examples of some things that I've begun to realize are part of the greater reward. I know and I hope that there are gonna be some incredible rewards when I get to heaven, that there will maybe be some people there somehow because of my life. And there will be people there somehow because of the people who were there, who were somehow there because of my life. But I've begun to realize that there are some rewards, not just in the there and then, but in the here and now. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say really clearly. I am not holding myself up as, 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 a, as, a, as a goal to strive towards. I am, a, I am a terrible goal for you to strive towards. Go past me and strive toward Jesus but I wanna give you an example of some things that I have begun to realize are part of the greater reward of, of trying to orient my life into the direction of this vision of what it means to be a godly man. One of those rewards is an honorable name. I've had the privilege of, of, of meeting people outside of our church that, 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 that know about me somehow and, and what we're doing. And they've told me, man, I respect what you're doing. I've had an opportunity to um, meet people in places that I'm at a lot where there are other um, Jesus people and, and non-Jesus people there. And I've had people in those environments who know and love and follow Jesus come up to me and say, man, you are a good ambassador for Jesus, man. Keep it up. I've had unbelievers as I've tried to tell them about Jesus and tell them my story. They, 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 they don't always say, say yes. Oh my gosh, thank goodness. Jesus, Jernigan has finally spoken and now my life is forever different. That's not how it works. In fact, oftentimes what happens is, is they say, you know what? I don't agree with you on some of this Jesus stuff, but I respect the way that you represent Jesus. One of the rewards is an honorable name. Here's another reward, a wife that respects, admires, and trusts me. Can I tell you, I'm not perfect. Dear Lord, if you spent more than three hours in our house, you would radically increase how much you pray for my wife. Dear Lord, she needs patience that comes only from you. But my wife admires, respects, and trusts me. There's never a time where I'm wondering, does she respect me? There's never a time where I'm wondering, does she trust me? And that has never been more true than in the times where I have radically failed as a man. 
where she would have been perfectly justified to point fingers of condemnation and, and, and all these things. Listen, don't get me wrong. We got issues, all right? I'm not trying to paint this rosy situation. We got issues. But there's never been a time where she's never forgiven me. And I believe it's because she respects not me, but Jesus that she sees in me because I constantly am trying to say, Jesus, you increase, me decrease. Here's another reward. I've got three kids. And at least so I'm told, they're not terrible to be around when I'm not by them. Now, I don't know how honest people are at church. Maybe y'all go, oh, those kids, those preacher's kids are so sweet. And you go home and like, dear Lord, they are hellions, spawns of Satan. But generally speaking, I've got, I've got three kids that are happy, they're healthy, they're growing. People tell me that they're generally speaking a joy to be around. My daughter accepted Christ this year and got baptized. My, my boys are asking questions and curious about Jesus. Here's another reward. I have respect from other men in my family. To the best of my knowledge, there aren't other men in my family that even though they may not agree, I've got people in my family that don't know, don't know and love Jesus and don't know why I would spend my life trying to tell the world about Jesus that they don't even believe is real. But they respect the way that I lead my family. They respect the way that I, I, I'm a husband to my wife. They respect the way that I, I parent my children. And perhaps one of the most fleeting things that honestly I haven't really begun to realize except until the last couple of years is I'm, you know, I'm not young anymore. I'm still young compared to some of y'all, but I'm not young anymore. I've got some gray hairs here to prove it. I have a growing satisfaction and fulfillment in my life. A couple of weeks ago, Jessica asked me this hypothetical thing. You know, I don't know what y'all do sometimes when, you know, you've talked about the same thing over and over and over again. And Jessica's super creative and always coming up with ideas. And she said, hey, I've got one for you. Hypothetical. If you could go back and redo life, what would you do differently? And I had to immediately rule out being a professional NBA player because that's just not realistic. I also had to rule out being a professional golfer, also not realistic. But I spent several minutes just thinking about my life and thinking about the decisions that have been made, the woman that I married, the children that I have, the, the, the places that I've been in my, in my life and my career and the decisions I've made with my finances. And, the, and I said, you know what, honestly, babe, like the, I've made mistakes along the way, but when it comes to the big picture stuff, I wouldn't change anything. I am fulfilled. I feel like I'm doing something with my life that matters and has meaning. And I love what I get to do. I love who I get to do it with. I love who I'm married to and I love the life that we have. Men, I'm just trying to give an example of what some of the greater rewards are that God wants us to expect. Because here's what a real man, a vision for real masculinity, authentic, genuine masculinity is a real man rejects passivity. He accepts responsibility. He leads courageously and he expects the greater reward. Let me tell you something. 
For some of you, this is brand new. This, this idea of having a vision to strive towards and aspire to as a man is news for you. Can I tell you what? This, this is hard. It's complicated. It's not easy. At times, this, to be a, a vision frame for which you view not just your life, but every situation, every moment, every decision, sometimes it's gonna feel lofty and not doable. I consider myself incredibly blessed that when I was graduating from high school, it was the first time that I had ever seen this. And I thought to myself, man, I want to be that kind of man. What kind of impact could a man that is defined by these four things, what kind of impact could a man like that have on the world? I started thinking about my family legacy and my family tree where divorce has riddled and broken and fractured so many relationships. I thought, God, I want to be different than that. I didn't say it with judgment or cynicism or criticism to any of the men in my family. I just felt like, God, when I saw this, God, I want to be that kind of man. From graduating high school up to the point that I'm at now, listen, I have made so many mistakes. There have been times where it would have been so much easier to do something else, to do something different, to respond, to react, to behave in a different way. But God has consistently brought me back to this vision of what a real man is. And I've strived in the decisions that I make, the places that I go, the things that I do, periodically, these things will come to my mind in this moment, right now, in this decision, would a real man do this or would they do that? And when I think about the difficulty and the hardship of following Jesus to become a real man, a a godly man, I'm thankful for the, the Psalm that David penned for us in Psalm 23, or Psalm 27, 13. He said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, what David is saying is, along my journey to be and do what God called me to be and do, to go from being a shepherd boy who was anointed as king, that is called to serve the person that he's going to take the place of, even after King Saul on multiple occasions sought to kill David. Facing battle after battle after battle, brokenness in his own family and his own marriage and with his own children. David said, I would have lost heart. I would have given up. I would have said, God, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I can't do it anymore. Unless, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, not, not then and there. I know I'm going to see it then and there, but to see it here and now in the land of the living. Listen to me, man. God has called you to be a real man that will reject passivity, accept responsibility, 
Lead courageously and expect a greater reward. And on that journey for you being the man that God wants you to be, it is going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be difficult. It is oftentimes going to be painful. You are going to be scrutinized. You are going to be made fun of. You are going to be criticized and and looked down upon. You might lose out on business opportunities and a job opportunity. Your children might be the ones that get left out of doing what all the other kids are doing. But do not lose heart. Because your God desires to give blessings and demonstrate his goodness in your life here and now. So let's man up. Let's be the man that God has called us to be, that our homes long for us to be, that society desperately needs for us to be. And if you are in any way involved in shaping the life of a boy to become a man, then what greater gift could you give that child than for them to see what a real man is, not just because they read it in a book or they heard it from a preacher, or they heard it out of your lips, but because they learned it by watching your life. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.